Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in science. In addition, our distinguished guest Sylvia Nasser will join us to discuss her book, A Beautiful Mind, The Life and Times of John Forbes Nash. Also with us today is our correspondent, Peter Crimmins, who will tell us about the Turk, an 18th century chess playing machine. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grogs. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Been eating well, sleeping well. How about you, Charles? I'm, I'm doing great, in fact. In fact, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're eating well, sleeping well. It's part of a healthy diet, mm-hmm. a healthy lifestyle. Yes. Yeah, so what do you like to eat? Uh, lately, my obsession is avocados. Avocados? Yes, green wow. and firm. They are green and firm. You know, you know what else might be pretty good to eat? Also green and firm sometimes. Uh, what? Dung. Dung? Dung, yeah, you know, feces. you got to be crapping me. I'm not crapping you. <laughs> as, as it turns out, there is an organism that does just this. It's the Egyptian vulture. The Egyptian vulture. The Egyptian vulture. And a group of researchers uh, led by Juan Negro and colleagues at the Doñana Biological Station in Seville, Spain, have been studying this. Really? Yeah, because they want to know, why is this bird eating some dung? And uh, why are they doing this? Well, they just kind of were curious, and it turns out that the main reason why this bird is eating dung is to attract other members, the opposite members of the of the species. Wow, if it only were that easy for us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a habit anyway, so why not? <laughs> so uh, are they talking about their own dung or some other animals? It's dung? actually the dung of other animals, cows, sheep, goats, etc. And it turns out, you know, they looked at the dung, thought that it might be because the bird was eating for nutrients, but they looked, saw very few proteins, little fat, but they did find a particular protein called lutein. Lutein. Isn't that some sort of pigment? Yes, it's a carotenoid pigment, in fact. And what it does is it uh, builds up in the skin and gives it its yellowish appearance. Uh-huh. And it's thought this yellowish appearance is very uh, vivid attractor for the opposite members of the sex. Wow. You know, they should patent this and sell it to uh, cosmetic companies. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not sure if it'll it'll fly, though. It'll be a hard sell. <laughs> Just take out the odor. <laughs> yeah, or, and get a teen pop star to promote it. It might work pretty well. <laughs> but, but if people want to know more about lutein and uh, great uh, skin benefits that it has, you can look in the recent edition of Nature. So, Charles, do you still use diapers? You know, I I don't think I've ever given up the habit. It's uh, mainly because I'm lazy, I think. (laughs) And and you want to help those vultures out, right? Well, you know, the vultures need the help they can get with their skin, you know. But you know that diapers are actually really bad for the environment. I've I've heard this, yes. So it turns out that the plastic and the fillers they use for these diapers don't break down very well. Yeah, they just kind of sit in the uh, landfills taking up space for years years and years. Yeah, for years and years and years. But some scientists are working on a solution. A team led by Professor Timothy Deming at UC Santa Barbara are just doing that. Really? How are they trying to solve this problem? So they're developing the next generation polymer, the fillers that they use within the diapers that can absorb the liquid. And what they want to do is they uh, they create these fillers using natural building blocks, amino acids. Stuff that uh, we're made out of. We're, yeah. So the concept is, is that these uh, materials will absorb the liquids really well, and once they get in the environment, bacteria can munch on them quite easily. Oh, okay. So the bacteria which can munch on the plastic now can munch on the, uh, the fillers in these uh, diapers. True. And then they'll break down within a few years, right? 
rather than 50 years or whatever. Whoa. So can uh, can we use these materials for anything else? Actually, it turns out that these polymers have various applications, including drug delivery. Wow. So not just diapers, but also drug delivery. How can one material do both things? So it turns out this material can encapsulate drugs, and then once it gets to uh, the target in your body, it releases them where it's needed. It's amazing. Yes. Anyone wants to know more, they can go once again to our journal, Nature. All right, Frank, have I ever commented on your beautiful-looking skin? Are you saying that I'm eating... I'm, I'm not suggesting actually anything about dung or, or diapers. In fact, the story has little to do with those. It has to do with stress, though. But I've heard of some people who are really stressed out knee diapers. <laughs> that's, that's really true, but the stress response that I'm talking about is that it has a role in contributing to bad skin and even hair loss. Ooh, that's not good. No, it's not. Well, a group of researchers led by Christos Zubulus at the Free University of Berlin have shown that a key hormone called the corticotropin-releasing hormone may be involved in this. Sounds complicated. Well, it's not, actually. It turns out that the hormone, which is a master stress hormone uh-huh. involved regulating adrenaline during a stress response, uh-huh. also has a role in uh, affecting skin secretion of uh, lipids. Oh, so you're saying that they uh, become oily. They become more oily, right. Uh-huh. So the researchers discovered this. They put some hormone on these sweat-producing glands and found that they produce more oils, which leads to pimples and all kinds of nasty skin things. I wonder what this is about those shiny bodybuilders, though. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should probably ask them. <laughs> so it's a big step forward that they find out this hormone has an effect, mm-hmm. and it could lead to further treatments for people with skin disorders. But until then, they're just suggesting uh, go to a stress management course. It's probably the easiest way. And uh, if anyone wants to know more, where should it go? Oh, yes. This was published in the recent edition of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Oh, our favorite journal. Indeed. So I guess we're going to finally revisit one of our favorite topics today. Oh, really? And uh, what's that? The afterglow of the Big Bang. The afterglow of a Big Bang. You know, I hear your skin looks really good in an afterglow of a Big Bang. No, no, not that Big Bang. What, what are we talking about? Uh, you know, the one that happened 14 to 15 oh, years oh, ago. Oh, the, the Big Bang. Oh, that Big Bang. What are you thinking? I, you don't want to know, really. So we're talking about the birth of the universe. Right. And the afterglow is the so-called cosmic microwave background that came with that. Oh, okay. And, and why is this interesting? Some recent results suggest that by understanding the background radiation, they can also understand how galaxies are formed. Oh, I see. And so they found out something new about the uh, microwave background? Uh, Some researchers at Caltech using the uh, the cosmic background imager have found fluctuations in the temperature of this background, and this suggests that there are also uh, fluctuations in the density of the early universe, or perturbations. Oh, I see. So these uh, small fluctuations in the density form the nucleus for formations of galaxies, then? Presumably. Wow, that's kind of interesting. Hopefully they can uh, validate or invalidate some of those theories regarding galactic formation. So do they know where these uh, perturbations came from initially? So that would require the unification of quantum mechanics and gravity, and Uh, unfortunately we just don't quite have that yet. Theoretical physicists are slacking, aren't they? Yeah, crack the whip. (laughs) (laughs) So so if people want to find out more about this, where can they go? Just do a search for a cosmic microwave background at the Caltech website. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, our distinguished guest Sylvia Nasser will join us to discuss her book, A Beautiful Mind, The Life and Times of Mathematical Genius, John Forbes Nash. So stay tuned.
back to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, the life and times of Professor John F. Nash, Jr., famed mathematician, has recently garnered much attention. The movie A Beautiful Mind swept through this year's Academy Awards, and the biography on which it was based, entitled A Beautiful Mind, The Life of Mathematical Genius John Forbes Nash by Sylvia Nasser, has earned its share of accolades as well. It won the 1998 Book Critics Circle Award for Biography, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. The author, Professor Sylvia Nasser, joins us today to discuss her book. Professor Nasser is both an accomplished economist and journalist, and is the first John S. and James L. Knight professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She is in the Bay Area today to give a lecture for the American Institute of Mathematics in Palo Alto. Professor Nasser, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, well, Professor Nasser, I think most of our uh, listeners have seen the movie A Beautiful Mind. But one of the things that strikes me uh, upon reading the book is the striking difference between the Hollywood version of Nash and the real-life uh, John Nash. I'm just wondering if you can comment a little bit about that. Well, I think that the the movie version focused on what was really most compelling about Nash's story, the things that, that drew me to it when I heard about him first in 1993 when I was a reporter at the Times and I heard that he might win a Nobel, I was really um, astonished. There's so many stories in and, and literature and theater about a spectacular rise followed by a devastating fall, I think of that. Icarus, but there are very few stories with much less real ones with a genuine third act. Hmm. And the idea that someone who had fallen so far and had been lost for so long, really three decades of, you know, in which Nash had just about disappeared from the world, that someone like that could be found, could reemerge, struck me as just amazing and that's what made me want to write the story and I think that's what the movie focuses on. The other extraordinary thing about Nash is of course that his reemergence was made possible by this community of mathematicians who never stopped valuing him, never abandoned him and this extraordinary woman, his wife Alicia, who refused to, to give up on him. And I, the movie was built around that. And I, so to me, yes, of course, a two hour feature film isn't the same as a 450 page biography. But in a way, I think that it, well, I shouldn't say in a way, I, I think it was a wonderful, a wonderful version of, yes, fictionalized but a wonderful version of this story. What what aspect, I guess, of the actual story of John Nash would you really have liked to have seen uh, portrayed in the the film there? Well, you see, I I think that what was so terrific about the movie and what makes it so incredibly meaningful to many people who see it is that the audience was able to put itself through a device, which I won't reveal since there must be some people who haven't seen the movie yet, but able to put themselves in John Nash's shoes to see the world through the eyes of someone who can no longer distinguish between delusion and reality. Someone for whom 
unreality is as real as you are sitting in front of me right now. And that is why I have had so many people, and, and, this, and the same is true for Ron Howard, so many people come up to me and say things like, I saw this movie with my family for the first time they were able to understand what I was struggling with. Okay, and that, that's huge. I don't think that any movie uh, depicting someone with a serious mental illness has ever done that. What's lovely is that this is a movie that people leave wanting to know more, and they want to know more about John Nash, they want to know more about his contributions, mm -hmm. they want to know more about how he recovered from an illness that most people still today believe is a life sentence. Mm -hmm. And they've turned to the book and to the, uh, the American Experience documentary. They're all different ways of capturing what is just an amazing story. Indeed. There's certainly this, this sense uh, in the book, and at least in the movie, that for, for Nash, that uh, perhaps genius and uh, madness, they might go uh, somewhat hand in hand. There's a nice quote in the book about uh, Nash saying that the reason he believes such ideas is because they came from the same ideas as his mathematical ideas. That's right. I think genius and madness are really linked here. Well, look, I think that you know, scholars like Kay Jamison have shown pretty convincingly that that there's a link between between some kinds of madness, namely bipolar illness, mm. that is mania and depression, and genius. Lots of lots of painters, poets, composers suffered. It turns out suffered from either depression or or bipolar. However, schizophrenia is different. It is so debilitating it sets in generally at such a young age it is so persistent that as in Nash's case it really attacks those things about the mind and the personality that are the source of important creative work in fact the the only other example I was able to find of an acknowledged genius who then uh, who then suffered from schizophrenia was Nijinsky, mm -hmm. and Nijinsky never again danced or or created ballets after age 24, which is when he got sick. Mm -hmm. So what happened to Nijinsky? Once his illness became full blown, mm -hmm. he stopped doing mathematics. He he became interested in, in numerology. He thought he was the Messiah, and he, he was looking for, you know, secrets to the universe, uh, not solutions to uh, mathematical problems. Well, the recovery of John Nash is certainly an exception in the case of schizophrenia. Well, it, it is and it isn't. John Nash recovered basically because of the chemistry of aging, mm -hmm. and it turns out that somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of people who suffer from long-term chronic schizophrenia uh, have a dramatic improvement after about 30 years. Okay, so it's there's and he was obviously in this. I use the word you know lucky in in uh, in quotes minority. Nash also had you know his own volition obviously played a role. He talks a lot about that that right. as the the urgency of the symptoms began to die down, that he very much wanted to reconnect with reality. He learned to recognize 
the delusional thoughts, realized that the voices he was hearing weren't a pr weren't people, but rather, rather, him, him, you know, thoughts in his own mind, and he consciously tried to put them aside. And of course, he also had a reason for wanting to reconnect, and that is that there were people in the, around him who loved him and and saw him for you know what he had been. So he's. In one sense, his story is very, very unusual. In another sense, it is also the story of many people now who, because of new drugs not available when he got ill, and the support of their families mm -hmm. and their own, you know, their own struggle with the illness, managed to reclaim some or, or much of their lives. Yeah. And in a way, to me, you know, the, the ultimate, you know, what makes Nash's story so powerful is not just that it's wonderfully dramatic and, and mythical, but that for millions of people who have struggled with this illness in an atmosphere of ignorance and stigma and, and pessimism, uh, it's a story of hope, and it says something that is very real, which is people can come back. It's really a very powerful story. I mean, it's also, <laughs> it's an amazingly romantic story, yeah. not a conventional romance, yeah. but very lovely. And uh, then, of course, his eventual awarding of the uh, Nobel Prize. One of the interesting things about that in your book is the politics that sort of went on behind the uh, scenes of the Nobel Prize there. <laughs> well, that was a, that came as a big surprise to me because that's, that piece of his story is something that I didn't really report until I was, you know, well into writing the book. And and he, and here's here's what it was. Uh, John John Nash's great contribution to economics. And remember, he was a pure mathematician, so this was only one of the things that he did. His great contribution to economics was a uh, PhD dissertation that he wrote at the age of 21. Uh, in which he really he developed a theory of human conflict and cooperation, a new theory of games that became hugely, hugely influential in economics starting in the early 80s. Now, Nash didn't get the Nobel until 1994, and as it turned out, even though he was widely regarded in the economics profession as one of the great giants on par with the Ken Arrows and Paul Samuelsons, just foundational thinker. He didn't get the prize though until 1994 because of the reservations of the Swedish Academy of Sciences which administers the economics Nobel about someone with this history of mental illness. And to their great credit, and particularly the credit of a handful of people on the prize committee in the academy who came to the conclusion that a mental illness, just like a physical illness, should not be a bar to recognition of, of something that was really a great breakthrough. It's a great credit to them that Nash got the prize because it was almost voted down the morning 
that the prize was announced. There is a final vote, usually a pro forma vote of the whole Academy, and there was tremendous sentiment among some quarters of the Academy that that you can never recover from schizophrenia, that this was not the Mm -hmm. same mind who had invented the Nash equilibrium and the the theory of non-cooperative games, and that therefore Nash shouldn't get the prize. The vote, it squeaked through, and and because of that, uh, the Nobel Committee made history. Mm-hmm. I know that even before, you know, the movie got Best <laughs> Picture, and <laughs> uh, that even long before that, the chairman of the of the prize committee, Asser Lindbeck, who is a wonderful, wonderful man, uh, said to me, "We lifted him out of darkness," um, and he said that it was only one of the only two prizes that really meant something to him in a personal and emotional way because it had such a big impact on Nash's life. Without that prize, we wouldn't be talking about his story today. People wouldn't know about it because he would have, you know, he would have died in the obscurity and and poverty to which he had, to which he had sunk. (laughs) How did you become interested in this, uh, this story and well, your opinions of the real John Nash? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, um, first of all, I'll, I'll start with the second. I mean, I, I, um, I spent two and a half years working on the book, and before that, mm-hmm. of course, I had written a, a, a profile of Nash. This is how it all got started for mm-hmm. the New York Times, and, uh, and I, I think I know more about the facts of John Nash's <laughs> life probably than any uh, any other person alive, and even John Nash, <laughs> and possibly even than John Nash in some ways. Um, that's you know that's what happens when you're someone's biographer, but and I have to say that that I never ever at any point and certainly not now ever lost you know the feeling of admiration and wonder and uh, and affection that I developed for Nash he did not cooperate with the book I talked to him on a bunch of occasions he was always happy to talk to me informally if we met at an academic meeting or a mutual friend's house for dinner but uh, we didn't become friends until after the book was published. He, 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 My first on-the-record interview with him was for a piece I did for the New York Times on how Nobel laureates spend their, <laughs> spend their prize money. Anyway, uh, you know, so, he, so it's quite an extraordinary, uh, I mean, it's been an extraordinary relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, first learned about, of course, I knew because I had done graduate work in economics, uh-huh. I knew what the Nash Equilibrium was. Sure. Every Everyone who takes one economics course knows the Nash Equilibrium. Of course, you never think that the person could still be alive because it's really contemporaneous with the Min-Max theorem of von Neumann, and von Neumann died in the 50s. <laughs> so when in 1993 I was gossiping with uh, a Princeton professor who had just come back from Stockholm, just gossiping about the uh, the economic the Nobel Prize that year and who might be on the short list. When I heard that this mentally ill mathematician who had haunted the mathematics building at at Princeton for years might be on the short list for an economics Nobel, of course I said, "Well, who's that?" And when he said Nash. I said, "Well, not the Nash of the Nash Equilibrium." So I was immediately. I mean, the thought was you know immediately intriguing because i knew what 
you know, that Nash had been one of the giants. I, of course, had no idea of his history. When I learned that he might, you know, conceivably win the prize and that he had seemed to have recovered from schizophrenia, I thought, oh, my God, this is the most amazing story that I've ever heard as a reporter. I didn't write the story then because I felt that and was convinced by a friend of Nash's in Princeton that, you know, most people on the short list for a Nobel Prize never win one. It mm. seemed like an incredible long shot. Right. And that in the absence of that, writing about him in the New York Times would be a terrible invasion of privacy. Mm. So it wasn't until a year and a half later when I'm sitting at my desk on the day that economics Nobels are announced and I see Nash's name and I just, at that point, I jumped up and ran <laughs> over to the business editor and I just blurted out a few lines of you know, who Nash was and you know this amazing turn of events. Wow. And, you know, Glenn got tears in his eyes, and I thought, okay, I'm going to write this story now. So that's what, and by the way, nobody in the economics or mathematics community was going to cooperate oh. and put the schizophrenia on the record, because hmm. even after he won a Nobel, his friends believed that the stigma of schizophrenia was so great mm -hmm. that they did not want to put it on the record, and it was not until I finally learned that he had a sister, and it was Martha uh, Nash Legg, wonderful woman, very courageous, who decided that she was going to break the silence on this. Otherwise, we wouldn't, you know, <laughs> again, we, you know, we wouldn't have heard this amazing story. Wow, wow, what a, what a turn of events there. Uh, well, it looks like we're running a little bit out of time right now, but uh, you're giving two talks in the Bay Area, or at least two talks. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> <Who knows how? laughs> I'm speaking tonight at Stanford University at an event sponsored by the American Institute of Mathematics. Tomorrow I'll be in uh, doing a conversation at the Commonwealth Club with mathematician Bob Osserman. Their last guest was, was Tom Stoppard. Wow. I, I think that's going to be very, very interesting. And on Saturday night, I'll be doing a book signing at Kepler's back in Palo Alto. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful to be here because so many people here have expressed such interest in yeah. Nash's life and work. The story that's captivated us all. Well, uh, Professor Nasser, I just want to thank you very much for joining us today at Berkeley Grocks. Well, thank you. I had a great time. Okay, Take thank care. You. Thank you. You were just listening to Professor Sylvia Nasser discussing her book, A Beautiful Mind. The Life of Mathematical Genius, John Forbes Nash. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Peter Crimmins will join us with his story on The Turk, an 18th century chess-playing machine. So stay tuned. only here on 90.7 FM KALX. And now it's time for the quote of the week. Ah, the quote of the week. And this week it comes from our friend Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci, ah, what does he have to say? And he said, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. The man has so many things to say. And so simple. <laughs> 
Okay, and joining us now with a story on the 18th century chess playing machine, the Turk, is Berkeley Grox correspondent Peter Crimmins. Peter? Drop a quarter into the slot. Now the wooden grandmother in the cabinet looks warily at you, turns her head in pondering your fate, and delivers her prophecy on a little card. Grandmother tells me, You are a very sensitive person and a very critical one. You have a very sharp tongue, which may cause unhappiness to others. How could she know that? It's just a mechanical vending machine. You know, that's, that's all. Breaking my suspension of disbelief is Dan Zelinsky, the guy who maintains the upkeep of antique arcade machines at the Musée Mechanique, overlooking San Francisco's Ocean Beach. Mechanical musical instruments and fortune tellers and strength testers and love tellers, things like photo booths and things like that. These machines, some of which are well over 100 years old, can get quite complicated. The Engelhardt Orchestrion packs a complete orchestra inside its cabinet, performing all the instruments for a full rendition of old-time classics. With its inner workings behind glass, you can see the brain behind the one-man band. But it's not a brain. Well, you see the perforations on that piano roll there? Yeah, I see that. Each per- perforation turns something on and off. It goes over that brass tracker bar. There's 80 different... While Dan describes the hypnotic inner workings of the orchestrion, the music seems more canned, soulless. What might have been a machine intelligently creating music is rendered a feat of basic mechanical engineering. Part of the machine's entertainment comes from watching the music. I want people to see how things work because that's what's most interesting. It's not just the performance of what it can do, but how it's doing it is what's fascinating, especially by today's standards where everything is computerized. You can open a computer and you won't see how it works. You open up anything here and the naked eye can see exactly how it works, whether you know what you're looking at or not. You can see it working. And that is a a fascinating element of mechanics. Today, they might be called quaint, but 300 years ago, machines like the orchestrion were the pinnacles of technical achievement. In the 1700s, ambitious and inventive clockmakers sought to make machines that could mimic human characteristics. Called automata, they were mechanical ornaments for the very rich that could set the table, play music, even act like a duck. Jacques Valkenson, for example, created a sensational automaton in 1737 that could play a flute by breathing and fingering the holes of the instrument. Author Tom Standage writes about historical technology. Faucon's automata, uh, his flute player, was regarded as so amazing by some people that they thought it had to be a trick. And so he actually had to uh, open up the inside so that the, the uh, scientists of Paris could have a look inside and verify that, yes, this was indeed a genuine automaton. So even, in, even at that stage, which is the 1730s, automata are already more complicated than most people are, are capable of understanding. Um, and once you're in that position, uh, people's ability to judge what is and is not possible uh, with a machine is problematic. Standage is the author of The Turk, the life and times of the famous 18th century chess-playing machine. The Turk was, like Valkinson's foot player and automaton, created by Austrian Wolfgang von Kemplin in 1770, the Turk reigned as the supreme automaton for a hundred years. It played chess. If you talk today about somebody being a mindless automaton, um, you mean they're doing the same thing over and over again without changing. And of course, that's what most automata did. And the amazing thing about the chess player was that it was interactive. It responded to its opponent's moves. So I think the reason that Kempelen built it was that there were all these automata that imitated different aspects of um, human nature. And he thought, well, what's the ultimate human quality? It's the ability to think. 
And so an automaton that appeared to be able to think would just, you know, would just knock everyone's socks off. It would be the best possible automaton. A mechanical object that could think? And think so well as to best the best chess players of the age? The Turk had its believers and its skeptics, but even the skeptics were fans. As it turns out, it was, in fact, a hoax. Nobody was able to definitively prove it till much later, but there was indeed a clever person crouched inside the Turk's cabinet, hidden behind some authentic-looking machinery. So let's jump ahead a few hundred years. In the 1950s, there was a philosopher named Alan Turing who developed the famous Turing test designed to suss out artificial intelligence against the real McCoy. It goes like this. A computer and a person are hidden behind their respective curtains. After asking both a series of questions, if you can't tell the computer from the person, the computer passes the test, and it's intelligent. Along with this test, Turing developed a mathematical chess game on paper that was designed to equate chess moves rather than think about them. Now let's jump ahead a little more. In 1996, IBM developed Deep Blue, a computer that could supposedly think, and did in fact beat world chess champion Garry Kasparov. The reason I'm interested in the Turk is that it lets us trace attitudes towards thinking machines. What's very amusing, though, is that um, by the 1950s, when electronic computers show up and computer scientists start making um, chess programs uh, in order to compare computer intelligence with human intelligence, and then Turing proposes the Turing test, we end up in the situation where the best yardstick for intelligence is all about trickery and playing games and imitating humans. And that's exactly what the Turk was. Back in 1769, it was a trick, and imitated a human and played a game. And um, so the hilarious thing is that, that having um, had 200 years to think about this, uh, we're right back where we started. And this is, this is I think, uh, Kempelin's great achievement, whether deliberately or not. He accidentally stumbled on what the computer scientists of the 20th century would later conclude on their own. Now, the Turk was a bit of a hoax, but it did seem to inspire people to actually go out and make complicated machinery things, yeah. um, the automatic loom. And maybe most notably, Charles Babbage, who went on to create a mechanical adding machine. Exactly. I can't prove it, but I think that the Turk helped inspire the power loom, a mechanical computer. Um, lots of people were trying to build power looms, automated weaving machines, in the 1780s, but um, nobody had really got it to work. And um, the man who finally patented the first power loom, Cartwright, um, did it after hearing about the Turk. And he remarked to one of his friends, if you can make a machine that plays chess, then I don't see why you can't make one that weaves. And then later on, Charles Babbage plays against the Turk twice in 1819. And it's a couple of years later that he starts thinking about whether machines can uh, perform logical reasoning and things like that. And I, I, I can't prove it, but I like to think that um, one of the things that led his thinking in that direction was that so many people at the time were saying, the Turk must be a trick, machines cannot perform logical operations. He saw no reason in theory why you couldn't build a machine that played chess. And now, of course, we know that he was right and that everybody else was wrong because there are machines today that do play chess. It's just their computers, not automata. Deep Blue and the Turing Test pose fundamental philosophical questions about the nature of thinking. Is thinking quantitative? Is it computational? In a sense, the high-powered computers are like the old Turk or the fortune tellers and canned orchestras at the Musée Mécanique. They don't threaten to rival human intelligence, but they do try. Therein might be the appeal to see one of our own machines mimic ourselves. And as scientists continue to mold doppelgangers out of nuts and bolts and motherboards, we're forced to think about what is essentially human.
For Berkeley Grox, I'm Peter Crimmins. Hey, thanks a lot, Peter, for that fascinating report. And now is the answer to last week's question of the week. Is the Earth farther from the sun during the winter or during the summer? Well, it turns out that the Earth is actually farther during the summer. However, due to the tilt of the Earth's axis, the Earth receives more sunlight, or flux, during the summer. As a result, it's hotter in the northern hemisphere even though the sun is farther away. Well, thanks, Frank. I guess I know why it's so hot around here now. And now it's time for this week's question of the week. What causes blisters? Well, if you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but your hands might be callous-free. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, The Boy Wonder. Boy Wonder.